0: with another episode of the BAT podcast. This is Randy Nonnenberg here, and I'm joined by Howard Swig. Hey, Howard.
1: Good afternoon. I'm excited for this one today.
0: Yeah, we got a really good one today with a a very interesting guest. We have Mr. Nick Ellis, who is the executive director of the RPM Foundation. Uh, You may uh, not know the RPM Foundation, or you may have heard of it, a bunch in the collector uh, space. They are uh, doing some very interesting things around uh, the future of the hobby. People, we get asked at BAT all the time. Howard will uh, echo this. We get asked all the time of you know where where is uh, the hobby going in terms of the, all these old cars? Who's going to work on them? Who's going to restore them? Who's going to uh, run these museums? You know, modern classics. Who's going to who's going to work on on those cars from the eighties and nineties? Uh, after those cars are thirty and forty years old, and what you know, what are young people doing in the in the space? And Nick is a uh, an expert with that, the RPM Foundation, we're going to have him lay out what they're up to, uh, and that is an organization that we respect and are very interested to hear from. So, Mr. Ellis, thank you for joining
2: us. Randy Howard, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here.
0: Yeah, so let's uh, let's dive right in. Um, obviously, the BAT community touches all sorts of interesting vehicles uh, in the U.S. and internationally, and can you just give us a, and the audience a basic overview of RPM Foundation and what you guys are up to?
2: Sure, yeah, so the RPM Foundation, RPM stands for Restoration, Preservation, and Mentorship. And what we're doing is we're looking at that skilled trade shortage that is affecting the nation as a whole, but specifically vehicle restoration and preservation. And this is, you know, we, we consider this to be such an important part of our culture. You know, you've got two different kinds of people, people who look at vehicles as getting from point A to point B, and then people who really drive their vehicles because they love them, they're, they're an avenue of expression, they're a way of recreation, they appreciate design and technology, all of that comes together to create a culture. And I, I doubt I'm saying anything that you guys or anybody listening to this podcast doesn't already believe. So I know I'm preaching in the choir on that, but the big concern is you know, that push in the 70s and 80s towards everybody completing a four-year college degree has resulted in this very serious skilled trade shortage in the U S and that's affecting restoration and preservation particularly because there's over 3000 restoration shops in the U S. And when you look at restoration instruction at the post-secondary level, you're looking at maybe a hundred students that are coming out of those programs per year. So, you know, when you see that epidemic of shop owners retiring, closing up shop, they've got nobody to take over for them. That's the reason right there. There's not nearly enough new talent coming into the pipeline. And it's affecting vehicle restoration and preservation harder than the other trades Because if you look at automotive technology and collision repair, you've got industry associations supporting those. They invest in educational programs. You've got the industry itself, developing internships and apprenticeships, and those populate their workforce. They keep the dealerships fully staffed. Restoration and preservation, that's a collection of small businesses that spread out across the country with little to no connective tissue between them. So that's where the RPM Foundation comes in. We consider vehicle culture to be an important enough part of our identity as a people that we need to keep that alive. We need to have a strong workforce of skilled craftspeople to keep those vehicles on the road and keep the culture going. So we take uh, a multi-tiered approach to combating the skilled trade shortage. We do, we're primarily known as a grant funding organization. We support schools at the post-secondary level with um, scholarship funding. We fund internships for students to round out their education. Uh, We support high schools to take on restoration projects with parts and materials funding. Uh, We give them equipment and tools too, and we fund uh, uh, programs that encourage youth participation in collective car culture. But we're also launching programs of our own. We've got an apprenticeship program that we're building, what we're calling the Endangered Skills Program. We're working with partners to bring programs to concours and different events. Uh, We just partnered with the Great Race on their X-Cup division. And, uh, you know, Bring a Trailer actually helped us out when we had our Sonoma Speed We participated in the Sonoma Speed Festival. You guys hosted um, an auction for us, uh, a hotel stay, tickets to the Sonoma Speed Festival, lunch with Lynn St. James, who's an RPM ambassador, and Exhibition Laps in a 62 Ferrari 250 GTO. And that brought in almost $9,000 to help our organization. So we're doing a lot of different things. I'd love to talk to them, uh, speak to each one of those individually, but that's the overview of the RPM Foundation. We do whatever we can to engage the next generation in becoming a part of the skilled labor uh, workforce that is going to keep this industry alive.
0: That's a fantastic overview and yeah we were really excited to be involved with uh, you guys for that event where we auctioned off that experience. Um, How long has RPM been around? Is this a brand new phenomenon or has this been around for a long time?
2: It's been around in different forms since 2005. We were actually started by Haggerty. We began as the Collectors Foundation. And uh, after a few years of operating as the collector, Collectors Foundation, it got to the size that Haggerty uh, wanted to hand it off to LeMay America's Car Museum in Tacoma. So it was rebranded at that point as the Haggerty Education Program. And LeMay America's Car Museum administered it. Uh, when it grew to the point where we needed to be a separate entity, it was spun off into the RPM Foundation. And now, RPM Foundation, LeMay America's Car Museum, and America on Wheels Museum are all underneath the umbrella of America's Automotive Trust. And America's Automotive Trust brings together like-minded nonprofits to share resources and to collaborate on their approach. So all of these organizations underneath the umbrella of America's Automotive Trust work to advance car culture. And because of that relationship with America's Automotive Trust, we're able to share resources and operate very lean. We have a very, very small staff at RPM and it allows us to, dedicate the greatest amount of our donor dollars to the programs that we support. Our overhead is very, very low. The the vast majority of our funding goes to those programs that we support.
1: And I would love to know, Nick, in in the past, call it three to five years, how has it been going? I mean, you're doing all these wonderful grant programs and and things of the sort. Are there a lot of young men and women out there who are, um, who are wanting to learn these skills and, and, and taking uh, those grants up or what has been the interest level kind of nationwide with, with your mission and, and everything that is behind it?
2: That's an excellent question. So, you know, when you talk to, when you talk to shop owners, when you talk to people who have been in the industry uh, for a long time, you kind of hear that same story of like, Oh, the next generation isn't interested in cars. You know, I can't get these kids off their phone long enough to to get involved with cars. I, I am at odds with that statement. I believe that there is an interest, that we have students that are, you know, getting into this industry and they are going to be terrific skilled craftspeople in this industry. We have to, as the people who are in the industry right now, we have to find ways to engage them and involve them in our industry. So the short answer is it's, it's going very well. You know, we have no shortage of people looking for the scholarship uh, support. We are looking to get into uh, internships and apprenticeships, but on a higher level, when we look out as at the interest as a whole, we need to be doing more to engage that next generation. There was a terrific article. uh, I think it was on in Hagerie magazine uh, called Gates and Ladders. I don't know if you guys saw this. It was about, the older generation putting up gates and pulling up ladders to the younger generation. An example would be, let's say you street raced when you were a kid. And that is what really sparked your interest in collecting and, uh, and restoring cars. But now you say, well, that's not really, I don't, I don't like the fact that these kids have these, tune their cars and they go buzzing down the road. And, you know, that was okay for me to do, but it's not okay for this generation to do. An example of a gate would be, you know, I collect pre-war Fords and those are, those are considered collectible vehicles. So when a young person comes along and wants to talk to me and they've got, you know, a 1996 Jeep Cherokee, I don't consider that to be part of the culture we have to be open and welcoming to people who are interested in vehicles. Maybe it's not what excites us, but it's what excites them. If they like it, we should like it. And we should be inviting them into the culture and making them a part of it. Because who knows somebody who starts out with their 1996 Jeep Cherokee could come to an event, come over and look at that 32 Ford and say, geez, this is for me too. And when I, reach that level where I can invest and get into this, this is what I'm going to look for. So by accepting what might not be your cup of tea, you could be growing the whole next generation of enthusiasts that are, are into what we're into.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, we have such crazy variety on BAT. We discover some of that friction from time to time, right? Like the, <laughs> the, the uh, you know car that sells for seventy two hundred bucks, you know, is listed right alongside the you know seven digit car, and it can be a different crowd. But there are uh, some really fun and interesting people we have discovered in the BAT community that actually love both, right? I and mean, sometimes you wouldn't you wouldn't guess, but that seven thousand dollar car might be. Being bought by a really well-heeled fo- uh, person that is uh, that just like really enjoys diversity or or something pulls at the heartstrings, so we see that quite a bit. And I, I think that hopefully BAT is helping foster a uh, yeah positive sort of influence on that. And honestly, frankly, we hear that there's you know younger folks on BAT than we would ever anticipate. Um, and I talked to you know friends like we started BAT when. Uh, we were pretty young, we were in our 20s, but we're not anymore, right? 15 years later, but there are uh, friends in my circle that, you know, their kids are looking at BAT and like looking at the cars that are being listed because they think that it's uh, interesting stuff and positive uh, stuff to be able to see in terms of that variety.
2: So I, I appreciate you saying that. Um, yeah. Well, one so- of the, one of the things that I really love about BAT is the comment section on, on the cars for sale, because You know, you've got people that are on there that have vast amounts of knowledge. And a lot of times, you know, just by scrolling through those comments, you learn a lot about the vehicles that are being featured on the website. So I can really imagine somebody, a young person who's a dreamer, who's really into these cars, jumping into the comments section, learning things about, about these vehicles that they never would have been able to find out just from, you know, maybe a Google search. So it's a a terrific, um, aspect to the site. Yeah,
0: absolutely. And talking about variety of cars, like sometimes I think, you know, oh, there's a shortage of expertise out there for, you know, pre-war, you know, and brass era cars, right? And, but can you tell us a little bit about what you're seeing in terms of, um, you know, either these shops that are reaching out to you or this, this broader need for talent? Does that Eke up into newer era um, collectibles and classics as well, or are you more trying to fill uh, this void for the you know the really old stuff where you know the owners of those are uh, you know eighty and, and ninety years old and the the talent is is um, sort of passing away um, in in ways based on the years that have
2: transpired. Yeah, good point. We are focusing completely across the board. I mean, we have a shop in our network that exclusively does pre-war vehicles. And, you know, they, they rely on coach work and woodwork and, you know, they're looking for people who can, uh, you know, come in there and shape wood and learn all of these old techniques. And there is a surprising amount of interest among young people in that. I mean, sometimes that really resonates with a young person, especially we've got a a young man in our network. His name is, um, um, Oh my God, I'm blanking on his name, but he's, um, very well rounded. He's just as good with woodworking as he is with uh, engines and, and uh, metal shaping. And he's somebody who will slot in perfectly into one of those shops and he's, you know, 22 years old, but we also have, we're also seeing shops that specialize in eighties and nineties cars. I just heard from a shop in Redmond, Wisconsin, or I sorry, Redmond, Washington that does DeLoreans and, You know, they're looking for somebody to learn that whole vehicle and come in. And this is an owner who has his eye on uh, retiring someday and wants to make sure that he has somebody to take over the shop when he retires. So there's, there's need at every level. And the good thing is that, you know, in this pool of talent, there's interest at every level. So we just need to find the people who match up interest with the need and connect them.
1: I would love to ask you more about the apprenticeship component. I mean, you had mentioned 3,000 odd restoration shops, you know, so many of those are, are one or two man operations. And and in many cases for, for marks and sub marks, you know, a lot of the really specialized knowledge is almost siloed with these guys who've been doing it for decades and decades. I mean, how are you going to find someone to rebuild a, you know, Kotal pre selector gearbox um, or, you know, you, the, I can, Name off the five or six guys who actually are, you know, rebuilding, you know, Ferrari V12 engine. So, uh, I think our audience would love to know how, how do you link up um, these young men and women once they have the basic knowledge and skills to finally, you know, find a destination for them to to learn from fr- from the masters and eventually take over their, you know, th- their book of business uh, uh, for them. How how does that work?
2: Right, and that's the key, isn't it? Is finding those. Uh those special people that can come into a shop like that and learn. And what I really stress uh, is that you, there's a a major, major difference between a student who is looking for a job and a student who's looking for a career. You've got plenty of students that want to go into automotive technology, inclusion repair, and that's wonderful. And that's good for them. They're, they're usually going to work in a dealership. They've got a nine to five job and they're going to go home. And the, the students that we're looking for are the ones that are genuinely passionate about this. They're a part of that culture that I was just talking about and they have to do this. They, they have to love what they're doing. They, are looking for perfection in what they do. They're the ones that, you know, after the teacher you know, finishes class, they're still there working on projects and, and making sure that they're getting it right. They're the ones that can't get enough of this. If you talk to any of the restoration shop owners, the, the thing that I hear over and over again is that more important than any level of education or experience is teachability and attitude. They're all looking for somebody who loves this enough to sit down, really pay attention, listen and learn. And they, they all are looking for somebody who is teachable, who is gonna fit into that shop, has a good work ethic, get along with everybody in the shop. So those are the students that we look for In the RPM network, we you know we talk to a lot of young people. We ask them you know questions about the field, what got them into this, and what where their interest lies. And when we find those hidden gems, we connect them with the shops in our network. So from the apprenticeship point of view, what we first look for is a host shop that is willing to take on an apprentice. Because like you said, a lot of them are very small operations. All of them are incredibly busy. So it's an investment to take on an apprentice. You can't just put them in front of a project and say, okay, I'll see you in a couple hours. You there is, you know, a certain amount of hand holding there, and there's labor involved in getting that young person up to speed. So it's a very special shop that is willing to put in that kind of work. So we first look for the shop that is looking for an apprentice and willing to participate in our apprenticeship program. We put together A task force of shop owners and educators to develop our own curriculum uh, that is specific to restoration and preservation. So when we have the host shop, we give them the curriculum, we tell them here's the task list with the apprenticeship that the apprentice will have to work through. And then we connect them with one of those above and beyond students that I was talking about. And the student learns that task list there in the shop. And depending on their level of skill when they come into the shop. I mean, if they're coming out of an established program where they already know a good amount of uh, the tasks that we'd be teaching, you know, you're looking at maybe six months for them to complete the curriculum at that point. But if they're coming out of just maybe a really, really competent high school level automotive technology and collision repair program, then our list will probably take closer to two years to get through during that time. RPM is supplementing the apprentice with gap funding to make up for the difference in what they're making in the shop because an apprentice is going to be paid at a lower level and any kind of expenses, living expenses or or, uh, that they might have. So we make it as easy as possible for the student to pursue a career like that by uh, participating in the apprenticeship.
1: That's very interesting. You had mentioned uh, auto shop class earlier. Uh, my high school did not have an auto shop class. I almost think of that as like home ec as in terms of a, uh, a past class that was, it's almost being phased out. I mean, it, it, is that an accurate um, statement? What, what is kind of the broader state of middle and high schools offering auto shop and, and, and that whole deal. I mean, I may imagine a lot of our listeners uh, probably have a lot of experience and opinions on that. Uh, I don't know if it differs between, uh, you know, uh, urban and rural environments in terms of access to those classes at, at a young age. And maybe this is almost a, uh, a conversation at the state and federal level for funding for that type of stuff. But um, I'd love to hear your, your, uh, your thoughts on, on that component, because it seems like that would be uh, maybe the easiest way to reach the, the broadest number of, uh, of people to expose them to, to the trade.
2: It definitely is. And unfortunately that is a very accurate assessment. The shop programs are closing down at what I'm going to describe as a disturbing rate. We, so we have programs of our own, like I mentioned, we'll, we'll do what we can to introduce young people to the possibilities of a career in in restoration. So those programs are things like uh, lining up several restoration shops for tours that the students can go on, where they'll meet the shop owners, they'll meet the people who work there and get an idea of what a, you know, working in that shop is like. Well, you know, uh, like the Sonoma Speed Festival, we brought eight students to that Speed Festival and uh, showed them how to perform concours level judging on 10 of the cars that were at the Speed Festival. Whenever we do a program like this we reach out to the high schools and community colleges that have automotive programs to speak to the instructors to recruit students to participate in the program. We do this by, you know, downloading lists of schools that have automotive programs. About I'm going to say 25% of the time when I reach out to a high school that's, you know, just 2 years ago was listed as having an automotive program, they tell me that the program has been shut down now i you know i'm not putting out that out there as an official figure we haven't done any research to that effect but it's definitely a disturbing trend that we're seeing so many of these high schools close down their programs and yes that is that's a a conversation at you know the the probably the federal level, but at the, at the local level to make sure that the amount of funds are going into the right places so that we're not losing these skilled trade programs. Uh, and it's um, something that I'm hoping RPM can have an influence on at some point, but uh, at the moment uh, we, don't have, we don't have a solution for that in particular.
0: Uh, circling back a little bit, you mentioned just sort of the the fact that some of the students that you're looking for are the ones that, you know, stay late and are working on their own projects in the, in the shop time and that sort of thing. I think that really uh, parallels what what Howard and I have seen in in, you know, where those shop owners came from. So what I've always liked about this sort of industry is the way that you can eventually you know start your own uh entity or be you know i mean some of these greatest shops you know paul russell and company and different sorts of stuff they've got the owner's name on the side of the building and like for for young folks um yeah you can go into the you know car dealer world i i had a little bit of experience there and that sort of thing but in in restoration and in uh you know more niche vehicles and different sorts of things we have seen so many people sort of go through the ranks and then run the show themselves. And I think that that would be uh, an interesting and compelling dynamic to this sort of small business owner track and path that could be inspiring for, for young people. Do you see that as, as a message that resonates or it's more just about getting people to, you know
2: uh, you know, the entry is more the, the, the tricky narrative. No, it's absolutely a message that resonates just about every, young person that I talk to, because I always ask them, what is your, what's your long-term plan? Are you looking to, you know, sharpen your craft and work for someone else? And is that going to be satisfying for you? Or are you looking to run the show someday? And just about every single one says they want to run the show. And that had a significant impact on our development of the apprenticeship program. We want to make sure that, while these students are learning the craft they're also learning the business side because being incredibly talented at shaping a fender doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be you're going to be given the tools to run a business around that so we've added to the apprenticeship program curriculum a lot of shop management tasks that the student will be learning in the shop and this is two pronged it's to A, if they do end up going on to a career, instill in them the, the um, abilities that they're going to be, need to be uh, successful in owning their own shop. And then B, it also helps them have a greater understanding when they go to work in the shop, what's involved in running a shop. When you're sympathetic to that as a, an employee, You have a better relationship with management. We've talked to a lot of shop owners that say, well, when somebody sees our labor rate on the wall and then looks at their pay, they say, well, how come I'm not making that? I worked on the car and and, uh, you're getting X amount of dollars per hour and I'm getting this much per hour. Getting them to understand that there's an entire back portion to owning a shop and running a shop and maintaining, uh, your own business, uh, you know, helps that employee employer relationship. So that's one of the reasons we implemented that into the, um, into the curriculum.
0: I think it's really, yeah, positive to talk about all aspects of that. And even, even the auto shop thing that you bring up, uh, Howard, which I I think is a, a really interesting conversation in and of itself, um, you know, where, where these uh young folks can go in terms of this business then there's so many opportunities whether you you know come up with interesting parts for for cars and you have more of a sort of engineering mindset or whether you're more into you know so many events that are being run in in these cars now um there are there's just so many um ways that you can be a passionate young person in the automotive field but then it all rolls back to keeping them running right which so we're that's where the some of the most important um, roles are uh, and skill sets are right there and, and important. So, yeah, love love the way that, that you're talking about all this and framing all of it. I, I think it's really an informational and, and helpful for me to learn about all these aspects. Can you tell us a little bit about what brought you to be the executive director? Is this just a, an area of passion for you? Is this a side project and you're, uh, you know, doing your own thing or did it find you? How did it how did that
2: come to be? Uh, A little bit of both. I had, I, what I, what I say a lot is if the RPM foundation had been around when I was in high school, my career would have looked completely different. I did not. I also did not have an automotive program when I was at high school and, but always loved cars. I always loved anything mechanical. I was the kid who, you know, took everything apart. and and then, you know, tried to figure out how to put it back together and drove my parents crazy because all of a sudden the TV's in a million pieces. So I always had that knack for it, but never even considered it as a career because the resources weren't there. So I went to the four-year college. I studied communications. I actually wanted to be in, uh, in radio. And, you know, when I came out of college, there were no jobs in my field. So I worked for the family business. We owned a candy factory and I did that for a few years. And then I just kind of picked up computers on my own and, and went into it. And I did that for a few years, but all throughout all of that, I was always tinkering with cars. I bought a 1967 Firebird convertible when I was one year out of college and making $8 an hour in the factory. And every single one of my paychecks went directly into that car. And it just got worse and worse as time went by. (laughs) So I finally, you know, learned how to work on that car myself. And I, you know, picked up motorcycles. I was always wrenching on something. So in 2007, uh, I was laid off from my IT job. And we were in the middle of a recession. And my father, who had had the candy stores and the candy factory when I was growing up, Uh, had closed everything down and went after his passion, which was classic cars. My dad, by the time he was married, my dad had owned over 20 different cars and always had those auto trader magazines next to his couch when I was growing up. So that's where I got the bug. Well, he pulled the trigger in 2004 and started this small dealership called Old Creek Motors. And he was a big Ford guy and brought in uh, Fords and Mercury's from you know the teens up to the 50s, but uh, didn't really do a lot of the work himself. So I, when I got laid off, I had this severance package and I had nothing but time on my hands. So I started coming out to the shop every day and I would work on the cars with him and had a real knack for especially the old Ford flathead engines, just Love that engine. I know it inside and out now. And it was the first engine that I completely broke down and rebuilt myself. So when you know, when it came time to maybe look for another IT job, I said, Well, I'd kind of like to stay here. So we did that together for about seven years. Um, we did mostly Fords and Mercury's, but we had all kinds of cars. We had a 54 Jaguar XK-120 at one point. We had 1948 Oldsmobile 98 that had been put on um, I think a cutlass chassis and had the big um, the big black Oldsmobile engine and it just was this radical custom so we had we did all kinds of different cars and it was just the the most fun I've ever had working in my life. Um, My father retired a few years ago and we were always a real small operation. So it was just the two of us. And when my dad retired, it was just me. So I, um, I missed being in a workplace with other people and um, actually met somebody uh, at a, a friend's house years ago who heard that I did cars. And she said, well, you, you need to meet Diane Fitzgerald, who at the time was the president of the RPM Foundation. So I met with Diane and we talked and she said, we're looking for somebody to handle our, our grants program. And so I switched careers and worked doing the grants, which is just about the most rewarding job that you can do when you are looking at programs that are in need and finding them to be in line with your mission and providing them with the funds to assist them with their mission. It's It's uh, incredible, it's incredibly rewarding to do. So um, when Diane retired, um, I was selected to succeed her as the executive director of the RPM Foundation. So that's um, only been a a couple of months now, but I've been enjoying it. This is hands down the best job I've ever had in my life. And um, I, I love the mission, it really resonates with me during the time that I was with Uh, My father doing the work that we did, we never did paint or body work. So we would always farm that out. And, you know, seeing the struggles that the shops were having in keeping staffed up and and keeping people working for them and finding new talent uh, really primed me for going into this position. I've seen both sides of it, and I really, really understand it.
1: That's very interesting. And they're they're certainly lucky to to have you at the helm, uh, who's so passionate about all this uh, I'd love to ask Thank you, you had mentioned some uh, some standout students that, that come to mind for you. I'd love to know at, the, at that early age of 21, 22, 23 years old, are they focused on finding kind of what their specialty will be? Do you have people saying, I want to be an engine builder, I want to be a paint and body guy, I want to be, you know, more basic service? Um, certainly part of that is kind of the, the runway for the career path. I mean, if you want to be you know, rebuilding small block Chevys, you're probably gonna be up and running faster than if you wanna be, you know, fully restoring aluminum body European sports cars. Um, so, so what have you found in terms of the, um, uh, kind of the motivation and pathway for these young men and women at, at that young age? Are they more just looking for the best opportunity um, that they can find? Or are you seeing that they um, are set on a very specific specialty and craft that they want to pursue?
2: They're usually pretty set on a specific path. These, these are the workers that are doing this because they love it. So if regardless of what the opportunity is, if, if they love shaping metal, they're not going to look at somebody who you know can tune Weber carburetors and say, oh, they're making more money than me. I'm going to switch over to that. They are doing this because they love it. So by the time they reach us, they've usually gotten a taste of what they're good at, what they like, and they're usually pretty set on that. Now, that being said, uh, we do have, I mentioned uh, the student I was trying to remember uh, before, his name's uh, Sean Robinson. He, he's uh, currently a student at McPherson College. Uh, Sean is good at just about anything. So he, he's somebody who's going to do very, very well in this field because a lot of those shops are looking for somebody who is multi-talented and can wear a lot of hats. But, you know, the larger shops that do have people who specialize in different areas, the students who are really, really good at something and really, really enjoy it, they're going to slot right into those shops and just excel.
0: You mentioned a college program that some people may or may not know about McPherson College is is referenced uh, often in terms of this sort of space. But do you think and do you find that um, what the shops want and potentially a, a, a career trajectory for workers are better if they go and, you know, put in several years in, a, in an accredited program like that versus they go put in the same several years, call it, at, you know, Rod Emery's shop in LA, or, you know, a very notable restorer or, uh, or um, you know, service facility that is equally well known. Do you see do you see, uh, you know, us really needing more of those accredited education programs, or we need more placements of these people within the well-known
2: shops to build their resume? Well, it's going to sound like a cop out, but we need both. <laughs> you know, we we need more programs for sure. We need more seats. I, I mean, a hundred uh, students coming out of these programs per year is not nearly enough. There are students that learn well in a classroom, in a teaching environment. And then there are students that learn well in a shop environment. And there's not a lot that you can do to manipulate that either way. I talk to a lot of shop teachers and they all say the same thing. You know, the the shop classes had a bad reputation of, you know, know, this is where the, the problem kids get sent. And that's a negative stigma that we really need to remove the, the kids that learn well in a a shop class environment, they just learn differently than the students that excel in a classroom. They're tactile learners and they're, they are just as bright and talented as somebody who excels in algebra or excels in literature. They, they just learn differently. So the, that's why I give that answer. We need both. We need programs that can uh, take care of students that learn one way, and we need shops that are willing to take on young people and guide them through their education a little bit more. I, um, that's why I, you know, I come back to the apprenticeship program. The, the number one thing that is important to maintain in that program is finding the shops that are willing to take on the apprentice. If a shop has time to train, then terrific, wonderful. But a lot of these shops don't have the time to do it. And that's when we need the post-secondary programs to be there and get them shop ready or as close to shop ready as they can so that they can hit the ground running when they hit those shops. We need both types of shops to uh, to thrive in order for the industry to keep going.
1: You know, I get, I get asked all the time by, by collection managers or, or, um, museum curators or or dealers or any number restoration shops, you know, Hey, Howard, we're looking for a young guy who knows about cars and is responsible and X, Y, Z. And my response is usually, well, you know, so are we. And if if we find him, I want to hire him too, or her. Um, (laughs) So I'd have to imagine when when, when you talk about um, these people who are shop ready that have come through your program, I'd have to imagine that people are bending over backwards to to have the first shot at hiring them or bringing them on board is Is that generally the case or it it depends on the uh, on the specialty or the region or, or other factors
2: No, that's definitely the case I've spoken with so we have shops that come to us that are looking for students looking for um uh, you know either entry level workers they're looking for apprentices they're looking for skilled workers they're all well I shouldn't say that the the shops that have the right attitude about this are willing to pay you know, the top dollar to bring talent in and i've you know we just did uh, an ad for one of the shops in Florida that is looking to pay seventy thousand dollars a year to one of the student you know not a student but a skilled uh, experienced, uh, uh, mechanic to come into that shop. So there are, there are rewards for sure. If you can find the right shop. Um, but yeah, the, the demand is definitely there and, um, there are definitely lots of opportunities for young people who want to pursue this as a career. There's no shortage of, shops that are looking for labor. That's just about everybody in the in the industry right now.
0: Uh, here's a question of a little bit different vein, but where, where does the money for RPM come from? Do you have corporate donors, I presume? Are they all in the automotive space or are they out of the automotive space?
2: Yeah, good question. We are 100% donor funded. Um, we have corporate donors, but the... Um, we're also very, very strongly supported by the individual enthusiasts. So, um, you know, however much we're doing, we always could be doing more. So um, we're always looking for more corporate partners, we're always looking for more interested uh, individual parties that wanna see this uh, this interest and these cars go on. So, you know, we're, we're actually up against, um, one of our funding cycles right now, I've got 15 programs that um, you know need grant funding, and you know the more that we can do to support those programs, uh, the more success we're going to see in moving the needle and getting this pipeline full of talented workers. So yeah, the the mix is uh, corporate and individual, but we have um, we've got good engagement from both. But we can always. We can always use more. We definitely, um, we definitely are looking for more funding so we can do more things.
0: That makes sense, yeah. Thanks for your uh, transparency on that. People always wanna know, I'm sure that's one of the questions wrestling around in, uh, in people's heads, is how does, how does this thing fly and how is it managed and how, how does it have the greatest impact um, which I'm sure is your current charge uh, as executive director. Uh, give us the 10-year the yeah. ten, ten dream. If you're working there uh, in that capacity for the next 10 years, where do you hope it is? And where, what do you hope the general landscape looks like that you guys are, are confronting in terms of uh, impact in the next
2: decade? Oh, my God, that's a terrific question. So it's going to take time to move the needle <laughs> in the direction that we need to do. We are trying to get the students at a younger and younger age to be interested in this. So, I mean, I, I, there's a great program in just outside of Detroit called drive one. And the executive director of that program is the first person who said this to me. And it really resonated. It was right when I first started doing the, the job. He said, high school is, is too late. We need to be getting young people involved in this at sixth or seventh grade, we have to have a, a wrench in their hand by then. Because by the time you hit high school, you're already kind of have your interests lined up and you're gonna, you're gonna start to gravitate towards those interests. And if automotive, uh, and if uh, motorcycle, marine, if that's not your interest by then, you, you would stand less and less of a chance of getting involved. So looking at it from that perspective, it's gonna take several years for us to engage them at a younger age to the point where we're casting this wider net and getting more people into the pipeline and starting to see a reaction. So I think for the next few years, we're going to have to be doing more of the same, more engaging students at that level, more supporting them, recruiting more apprentices, doing more to introduce young people into this interest and the industry. But eventually when we're talking about the long term plan i would really love to see rpm as the solution to all of the all of the different hobby and industry issues related to young people getting involved You know, at the club level, if you look at AACA and uh, 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 Antique Automobile Club of America and Classic Car Club of America, you know, the median age of their members is probably 60, 70 years old. There are, there's a need there for engagement at the youth level. And RPM is very well positioned to be that conduit between clubs and between the students. So we could be doing more to offer junior memberships in these clubs and Putting together um, programs and uh, events for young people to get interested in these clubs. One of the things I proposed is having um, having the clubs bring in a group of students and have a tech session. If you've got you know if you can imagine Porsche Club of America, the local chapter, getting some automotive students together and teaching them how to you know uh, you know time. Uh, horizontally opposed six cylinder. And this is going to be something that they've never seen before. And out of that group of students, maybe we're going to get two or three of those students who see that and say, oh gosh, I've got to do this for a living, or I've got to do this as, as a hobby. We could be doing more. We could always be doing more to engage the next generation. So when, when we're looking down the road, I want RPM to be, that go-to solution for any aspect of the industry that wants to engage the next generation.
0: Fantastic. Thanks for laying that out for us. I'm excited for the next uh, decade and what it what it has uh, out in front of us for BAT and for things like RPM and uh, how people will be getting involved with it. And I hope we can maybe do some more interesting auctions or, or things that can help you guys move your mission forward. Um, That'd be terrific. I hope so too. Yeah, it will be a, it will be a fun uh, few years in, uh, in the, in the, the uh, years ahead. So thank you for joining us, uh, Mr. Nick Ellis. Uh, if people want to find you or get more involved with uh, RPM Foundation. Obviously, you have the website there and you have social channels. Um, there's some neat information and, and stories there. Uh, RPM.foundation, I think, is the URL. Is that right? That is correct. RPM.foundation. Um, so people can find you there and always an interesting uh topic thanks for spreading it out a little bit beyond rpm and what's going on in schools with young folks what you're seeing Uh, i think this is a conversation that we will probably have many chapters of it will continue to evolve howard and i talk about this all the time you know where we're going to take our latest broken car to go get it resolved and like the the uh, status and the busyness of that shop where we go try to take it Uh, it's a super interesting one. It impacts uh, things all the way up
2: the car food chain. So
0: thanks for uh, spending some time with us and uh, thanks for what you're working on there.
2: Thank you so much for having me. It was great talking with you both.
0: All right, Howard, we'll uh, wrap it here and we'll see everybody on the next BAT podcast.